לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Baum in, in Highland Park at the Highland Park Conservative Couple Congregation on Chambet. And joining me as always, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salmash Ekta Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Hachay Chesed, New York. We are, we are recording this on Thursday. It's, it's been a very, very tough week for Israel, for the Jewish people. We are just sending our feelings of solidarity, our chizuk, our wishes of chizuk. We know... Many of us, we have friends, family, some of us, you know, children, and those of you who are watching, listening, and, and sharing, first of all, our Israeli friends, and we are with you, know that we are with you, and we are thinking about you, and we're sending our, our love to you, our chizuk, and our embrace, and we want to share some Torah with you, even though these are difficult times, we are finding comfort and refuge, our own kind of shelter in Torah, and let's go right into it. Bamidbar is this week, Parsha Bamidbar. We're starting a new book. We're starting a new uh, Parsha. I want to say this is an amazing Parsha, but I guess you can say maybe it's not as amazing as some other Parshas, but, but I have a reason for saying that this is a great Parsha. You know, we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but but maybe just kind of would you like to just say a few words about Bamidbar as a book, starting the book? I, you know, give me, give me a sentence about the book. You know, subtitle the book, Bamidbar. Jeremy, subtitle? Yeah, it's Bamidbar. I think the names, the, the Latin or in, you know, the Latin and English name and then the, the Hebrew name of Bamidbar. Obviously, in Hebrew, what we do is we take just the first word and, and call it Bamidbar. But the book really is about the wilderness. It's about the challenges to Moses' leadership. It's about the, this long, slow, 40-year slog of failure. Um, and it's a, it's a reminder, you know, in the words of the philosopher Michael Walzer, who wrote the book Exodus and Revolution, uh, Lives in My Neighborhood, um, says, you know, wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. And, and to get to some promised land, you're going to have to go through a Midbar. You're going to have to yeah. go through a, a wilderness. And I think that that really does describe the kind of relentless suffering and difficult journey of this book, the complaining about the food, the complaining about the water, the challenges to Moses. Um, and it's hard. Um, uh, and then the Latin name of numbers is pretty interesting as well, um, because we do begin with the census, as we'll talk about. And I would I would contrast the... Uh, the name of the second book of the Bible in Hebrew with the name of the fourth book in English, names, shmot, and numbers. Um, in, in a sense, I, I would say, maybe it's a little homiletical, that the, that the greatness of shmot is like, it's, it's about the individual people, each person matters. Um, and maybe this one is about the collective, the, the mass of numbers, and maybe that's a little less intimate or less personal. Um, I will confess that that uh, if, if, I mean, I'm not editing the Torah, but uh, not yet. Midbar is, but Midbar is, is not, 
It's one of the it's one of the five best books of the of Moses. <laughs> okay, Barry, Barry Chesley, give us your narrative arc of the Midbar, or your subtitle, or any kind of description. Well, obviously, the subtitle is Numbers, but I want to look at it in a different way, and that is that the three interior books of the Torah, Shemot, Vayikra, and Bamidbar, are in a sense the telling the same story three different times, and we have Breshi, which is the introduction to the Jewish people. As we've come to understand it, Devarim is the retrospective, taking a long look back. And Shemot and Bamidbar cover much of the same ground. Several of the stories appear both in Shemot and in Bamidbar. And even in a sense, Vayikra is linked as well. So if we go to the very first verse, my wife used to say that was all I read when I would prepare Devar Torah. So the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting, uh, the first month, of, uh, the first of the second month in the second year after they left Egypt. This recalls the beginning of, of Vayikra, where God is also speaking out of the Ohel Moed as well. And I like Rashi's comment here because it's also close to what he has in Vayikra as well. And that is that the counting is a sign of God's love for the Jewish people. That God pays careful attention and he is not unlike a tour guide who numbers the people when they get on and off the bus to make sure that he or she has the full complement with them. So God is going to count the people here to make sure that everyone is in the right place. Let's give the quote. Mitoch chibatan lefanav mone otam koshana. From, from, <laughs> sorry, then you'll get the, the joke in a second. Because of his love for them, he counts them every hour. I said every year, Shana, Shana. He counts them every hour. So that recalls the mission in Rosh Hashanah, where the people pass before God. Exactly. They um, So I think that Bamidbar is paradoxically supposed to provide us some comfort, even though, as Jeremy mentioned, the stories are so disturbing. The Jewish people don't really come off well until the very end, when they are able to enter a battle and leave without any um, casualties. But this, this book is a struggle from almost beginning to end. Well, it's politics. It's the messiness of life. And we, we've talked about those themes, uh, uh, you know, last year we talked about a lot, a lot of that. Uh, it's also the Levitical book, the book of the Levites. If 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 Leviticus is the book of the Kohanim, but Midbar really is the Torah to Levi'im. But that's a different story. I want to go back to to the Rashi, and I want to uh, um, talk about counting, and I want to talk about information, because what we see in the first two chapters, especially with the the census, is this conveyance of information. So uh, my proposition here is that. Um, there is something in the way that the Torah conveys statistical information that is different from the way that we, as modern people, encounter statistical information today. And, and I suggest that there's a difference between the narration of information and the visual display of quantitative information. We are so used to seeing graphs and charts and infographics, you know, go turn to, you know, I, every day I look at the statistics of vaccinations and COVID cases, etc. And, and 
you're seeing, you know, lots and lots of artistry and creativity in the way that we convey information visually. The Torah, the Torah is not a visual book. The Torah you is know, a narrative. What you need for that kind of visual presentation are numerals. Yes. Right? We have words. All the numbers are counted, are, are written out. Right? So, and so it, it raises a question, you know, when did the Hebrew letters come to be numerals in, in Hebrew? I th it's a fascinating question, and, and I think this is a, a history of language question. It's a history of, of arithmetic and, and, and display. I mean, you know, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't, we, wouldn't we do better, let's say, you know, just want to fast forward to the end of the Parsha, you know, Parsha Masse, right? All the, all the different places that the people went. You know, I'd like a map, please. You know, can you, can you, you know, illustrate that for me on a chart? You know, it's so much more accessible, and yet, Having information delivered to us in a narrative means that this is a story and that this is our story and that we communicate and we get we, we are taken seriously on the basis of the way that we narrate stories. And, and part of narrating stories is, at least in our case, it's we're going to chant this. I mean, you're going to get it in shul, you know, the Shabbos and you're going to say, you know, here, here are the different things. You know, you can't get too romantic about right. it. Well, no, you can't, because what the story presentation here shows us, because each tribe is going to be portrayed in the same way, and it has the same music, so we're having the theme repeated over and over again, and that creates a different story because what we have here is a, a story of harmony. This is a dramatic reading of a community becoming a community by being counted. So the numbers, that, are, going to be, the numbers are going to be different for each tribe, but the way that they're told and sung is going to be exactly the same. Okay, so I want to just, uh, you know, you, you've illustrated such an amazing point here just to, to emphasize that, you know, when I get up in front of the show and say, you know, reading Burmese, turn the page, whatever, or, you know, or say, um, you know, this is a, this is a story. This is a, the, a Parsha of the statistics that doesn't, that doesn't say what you just said, right? It, I, there's, there's more here. And, and we, we overlook the details and the chanting and the music and the harmony and the idea behind it. The same way that, for example, in, in the end of Shmot, I mean, you know, you're talking about the, the Mishkan, and I mean, how many times do I have to talk about the Mishkan? And, and you know, it, it's the details are overwhelming, and yet there's a rhapsody here. There's a, there's a, there's a, I, I get, look, there's a romantic element to the details of our rich history, even though they are just so mundane. Uh, Jeremy? No, I, I, I uh, Barry, I just, um, I uh, really am blown away by that observation about the harmony um, because I must say that I have felt in about this passage and the uh, and the kind of relentless end of Parshat Naso and when each of the tribes brings the identical identical gift it's so repetitive it's so boring uh, and I've often been puzzled about why are they doing this um, but what you what, by by referring to the way that we present it uh, parentheses. We in an Ashkenazi shul by by our you know styles of reading. Um, I, I don't know what it sounds like. I don't know. Of course, I can't know what it sounded like in ancient times, and I don't know what it sounds like in in you know maybe Mizrahi 
um, settings who, who don't read the trope in the same style that we do. But uh, the the vibe and the feeling that what you just said really opened it up for me um, as a presentation of unity and as a presentation, a visual presentation, you know, for this tribe, the priest's name is some, the prince's name is something, and this tribe, the prince's name is something. It's like you, it's almost dramatic. You see them coming up one after another, after another, and that, that was really great. So that, that's really Torah at its best. You know, when, when you can, you know, the people who are, are, are experts on the idea of trope kind of poo-poo this idea of, you know, the trope as interpretation, but I, I, I'm, I'm in the other camp. I think, you know, anytime you put music or melody to the words, you're, you're giving an interpretation of some sort. And the fact that the, the, the chanting, the, the claiming of the, of the text um, creates a picture for you in your, in, your, in your mind, I think is what it's all about. It's narrative. It's storytelling. It's, this is, this is our, what, what our love of this is. This is we are re-entering the desert and we are going back to that time and place. We're telling a story and we are trying to put together in our own ways the, the relative sizes of the tribes, which... In this uh, census, they're they're quite equal. They're you know maybe Judah's a little more, maybe some another a little less. But um, we're getting a story here, and that's you know the beauty of it. We're getting a, a beautiful story here, and the story goes on and continues to the parsha in terms of the uh, array of the tribes around the Mishkan, which I think tells a very important uh, story about the centrality of the Mishkan in the physical layout of the of the people. Um, I think that that uh, has a tremendous theology to it, that, uh, to, you know, the Mishkan and God is at the center and the way that the, the tribes are going to be arrayed as they make their way through the, through the, through the desert. Very There's a kind of social development that's also revealed here. So Jacob Milgram, who is one of the most brilliant Bible commentators for the way that he pays attention to language and the way it changes throughout the Bible in the way that we refer to families and tribes, etc. So what we have in the Parsha is this idea that the Levites are going to be separated out. They're not going to be counted with the rest of the people. And they're in exchange for the firstborn. So in ancient, ancient society, the firstborn becomes a priest. And then I suspect because of social uh, socialization with the development of society, you need a class of people. You can't rely on the firstborn anymore. You're going to have a guild of priests, which is, in a sense, what the Levites are. And so there is going to be this exchange of the firstborn for the priests, which really, or firstborn for the Levites, which isn't really described. It's just mentioned, right? There's no explanation for it. The explanation that we have comes in Parsha Kitisa, I think, with the golden calf, where Levi becomes the dominant um, cultic tribe because of their refusal to participate in the popular cult. They stayed with God's cult. And so what we see here also is under the surface, a kind of growth of the people throughout time. So I have a slightly like, different, I have a slightly different take on the, um, on the, on the firstborn and the priests. I think that the, I see the replacement of the firstborn um, as sort of being, uh, as, as being, um, you know, uh, woven together with the Torah's, uh, favoring of the second born, um, firstborns typically, um, uh, you know, they are, they are the apparently powerful and they often screw it up 
and they're they're sort of like the physically better, but the maybe less worthy. And so the cult of the firstborn, which by the way, is the only way to make sense of how Samuel gets dedicated, you know, this, the, the, the birth of Samuel, he's, he's gonna stay in the, in the temple because, because he's the firstborn. Um, he's not a Kohen, but he's the firstborn. Uh, and um, I think that, that the Torah seems to be saying, let's replicate that story of the firstborn, not really deserving centrality in, in the religious um, place. And so let's replace it with this, the, the tribe, which as you said, Barry, in, in the golden calf story is, um, is, is demonstrating its spiritual fitness. So just to give further support to what you say, Jeremy, so Levi is most often paired with his older brother, Shimon. It's Shimon and Levi. So it's not Shimon who's going to become, because he's kind of a firstborn of the pair. It's going to be the secondborn Levi as well. Well, I'd like to offer, a, 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 not a rebuttal, but maybe a, a davaracher, an alternate way of looking at this, which is through, through very practical eyes, which is, it's unsustainable to take the firstborn out of every family. It creates a tremendous disruption within, within the systems of families. You know, uh, we, we all have children. So imagine if, you know, you, you had to, it's not sacrifice your child, although it could have been a kind of sacrifice of your firstborn, certainly in, in, in the use of that kind of thing. When, let's say, you own a business or you, and you, you are dependent on some kind of succession, and the family dynamic is altered to, to such an extent that I think it's, it's quite ruptured by, by the, the, the preference for the firstborn and the prerogative of the firstborn going off to serve the temple. I think it's anti-family. It's anti-family to take the firstborn. And because the Torah is so pro-family, the Torah insists on maintaining the strength of the family structure. I see this from the beginning of the Torah right through the end of the Tanakh that the, the biblical worldview really is constructed on the centrality of family as the defining feature and organizational unit of society. And having one, having your, your firstborn go off to serve God, it contradicts that and destabilizes the family to such an extent that, that, that Judaism, the Torah, from beginning from the Torah, kind of says, nah, we're, we're, yeah, you, get your, you get your Levites. It's much more... It's much more efficient to develop your traditions through the family, uh, you know, the traditions of taking care of the Mishkan, et cetera, and the prerogatives of the Levites. And that's a much more efficient way of communicating and transmitting information than it is by having to send off your firstborn to Levite summer camp every summer and teaching them how to do it. It's very inefficient to do that. What you said right now is uh, is a great illustration that when, when we... Um, uh, when we interpret the Torah, you know, there are so many different kind of styles. I had a great meeting with a Bat Mitzvah kid today who said the fabulous, fabulous thing. Wow, I, I couldn't imagine that we could get so much out of four little paragraphs in Is the that Torah. Something? There's, so, there's so much we can do. And, um, and you know, I, I'm always going to be inclined to some sort of symbolic reading. And it's not the only way to do it, right? You can you can try to think that a symbolic point is being made or or a spiritual point, and you can also say, by the way, this is these are the fundament of life, and you got to figure out what what works for a society and what's sustainable, because we know that people, um, you know, who hold land have to see to it that that those matches can be made and the lands can be preserved and the children can can come. And Levites, what don't they have? They don't have land. They have they have a, a certain number of cities, and um, and having a whole class of people 
whose social function uh, is an educative function, is a ritual function, and is not an agricultural function, that, that may well, in fact, be exactly as you said, uh, a very practical, functional social point. And that information, I think, you know, gets transmitted much better. Like there's the how to do the sacrifice, you know, it gets much, it's much better, much easier to transmit it in the family. I'll just give you a little, you know, I don't want to go back to Vaikra too much, but when I was studying about these sacrifices and slaughtering animals and everything, I went, I saw these videos and you go, you know, somewhere in the deep South, you know, there's a guy who's sitting on a chair and they want to eat it. They want to eat their cow. And so he's got his children and his grandchildren right there. And it's an amazing video. And, you know, it kills the cow and the kids are all there and they're, they're, they're learning, you know, when they're four or five, how to skin the cows. It's, you know, it's gross and disgusting to us, but, but, but these guys are, the kids are enthralled. And, and, you know, when you learn from that age to do that, then you're, you're going to, you're learning the trade. you you know, it, 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 it comes to you naturally. There's not, it's not an accident that, that in, in, the society that existed prior to our highly diversified society, that professions were passed down, you know, parent to child, mostly father to son, you know, they were guilds, but there were also people, you know, you want to learn how to estimate a building, you watch me, you know, you want to learn how to, how to, you know, cook up a formula, watch me, you want to learn how to, I mean, you know, it's not, I, an I, would, I would hesitate, I would hesitate on the father to son thing, which I, obviously that is true, but I would, um, add that, you know, women um, also had domestic trades, you know, when, when we talk about, uh, what do you call it, the, you know, the Eshet Chayel, um, she is seen as making textiles. And that was an enormously, um, enormously uh, necessary job that must have been passed similarly uh, mother to daughter and food preparation, how you grind, how you bake. I read this article once, uh, not long ago, about um, about you know the incredible economic importance of textile making. That the, and the, the person who wrote this article, I, I'm forgetting a lot of the details, but the the this one thing that really stuck with me. There's this Viking song that uh, uh, you know some sort of epic poem, uh, which is all about the sail, um, not the ship, but the sail because the hours, the human hours that it took, presumably women, to produce the fibers, to make the sail, was so much more economically valuable than the wood and the ship. That can be replaced, we can get some more wood, but oh my goodness, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of human hours that it took to, to weave a sail, now that's what you need. So, so there's something there, there's something there. Well look, you know, on the, on the theme of, of you know, different ways to read the Torah, different ways to understand the Torah, we're coming up to Shavuot, Shavuot Sunday night, and um, Shavuot is the Torah holiday. Now, now it may not have been the Torah holiday in antiquity, in the Bible, in biblical, or certainly not, it was more tied to the agricultural cycle, but for us, it has become, I propose, the holiday of, of the rabbis. It's the holiday of, of celebrating the study of Torah. No holiday does it like that. Um, and, and my question really to both of you is, how how have you seen Shavuot in your lifetimes? How have you how, how what's going on? What's or as Seinfeld would say, what's the deal with Shavuot? What's the deal? What's, Who would say that? What Jerry Seinfeld? You know what's the deal with you know <laughs> what like 
the job well, I, I think it reflects a change perhaps in the way that Amcha understands Torah. Because the first fruits originally, as you alluded to, was an agricultural product. And now our first fruits, in a sense, is the Torah. And just to stay with this image for a moment, that with the first fruits, we could begin to think about what the harvest will be. So it gives us a chance for a, a short-term immersion into the Torah that's supposed to carry us through the rest of the year. The tikkun, which is a kind of concentrated study that takes place in many synagogues and social institutions in the Jewish community, gives a lot of people an entree into the formal study of Torah in its widest meaning, because the topics and texts range, as we were talking before the show, from Yiddish literature to rabbinic texts, biblical texts. And it's, it's supposed to point towards a larger harvest, which, you know, agriculturally we'll see at Sukkot with Simchat Torah, um, which is the celebration of the Torah as, as well. But I kind of see Shavuot as reading a love letter from God. So, so I mean, a lovely connection. The, the, you know, you're, it's a very poetic connection between um, the agricultural harvest and the Torah. Jeremy, for you, you know, Give me, give me, give me some Torah, man. Give me, give me. Some, yeah. Well, I uh, Torah about Torah. I, I don't. I mean, I, I can't say, and I don't really know, um, like a historical comparison of how things might have changed. But I would say that one of the really cool um, advances in the last twenty years or so um, has been the the triggering of these. Of these, you know, not necessarily traditional um, tikkunim uh, in the Alma College in Tel Aviv. Ruth Calderon, who was a Talmud scholar and, and a Talmidat Chachamim and a tremendous person in her own right, um, began Shavuot secular tikkunim. They were very successful, and she and she's actually the origin. I was at the first meeting for the first planning meeting for the ones where uh, was, she was the original motive force when she was working in New York at the UJ Federation for the JCC Tikkun. And that has also been a model and they've filtered through, um, they're all over Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, not necessarily in, in sectors of people who would otherwise be spending a lot of time studying Torah, but the trigger and the exploration for people to discover what might be in this tradition that they might they might not otherwise know. So this feeling of, of discovery and poetry and, uh, and learning, I, I find just really stirring. Do you think it's a movement? I mean, a movement in the sense that, you know, culturally we're, we, we've taken a day, we've taken this celebration and, and we've gone with it, that we've created something around it. I mean, most synagogues have something, uh, you know, Shavuot, if not the full blown, you know, to, you know, we're not, you know full blown all nighter, you know, we're having some kind of celebration. And it's of course different from Simchat Torah, which is just the, you know, uh, a kind of eruption of, of joy. This is, this is what it's all about. I think there's there's something very deep to to, to Shavuot in the sense that we're, we're we're making contact with with Torah as broadly defined as as we can. You can hear all sorts of presentations about Torah, you know, ranging from you know what you described to like you know, you know the structural analysis of uh, Masachet Brachot in the first chapter. I don't know. You know, go ahead, Barry. <laughs> so Simchat Torah is about the physical Torah, right? We dance with the Torah itself. But on Shavuot, we take ownership of the Torah. 
and it becomes our Torah. And I think that one of the things that explains the wide variety of subjects is that Torah in the rabbinic tradition is goes from the Aleph of the Ten Commandments that's unpronounced to everything that any intelligent student would ever say to his, his or her teacher throughout eternity. So on one level, Torah is, I guess, the pintle yid, the, the dot that has no significance, to everything that is ever learned in the name of God and text. And it's become, I guess, in that sense, a much more popular holiday. It's not just the rabbis reading, but it's the way that the people read the rabbis. So so it's interesting, you know, I, I, the, I, I shared a sheet, my men's club is putting out um, different uh, you know, sheets for, for study, and I chose the, the, the text, you know, God goes to all the different nations and, and offers them the Torah, you know, and goes to uh, Asav and says, you want the Torah? And he says, what's in it? And it says, do not murder. And he says, ah, I'm, uh, you know, not, not for me. <laughs> and and I, I actually propose that, that there's a deeper meaning in that text, which is you got to strip away your preconceptions. You know, what, what happens in the text is that Israel says, they don't even ask, they say, Nasev and Ishma. And I think what, what Torah demands of us, receiving the Torah, you know, Matan Torah, is, you know what? Just put aside all of your preconceptions, all of your, all of your thoughts, all of your inhibitions. And, and here, you know, I guess we would be speaking to, to people who are a little shy, a little bit of apprehensive. They don't want, you know, they don't want to feel religious. They don't want to feel, you know, it's not for, they say it's not for me, you know. And so like, hey, hey, put that aside. Put that, there's, there's something beautiful here. There's something gorgeous here. Look at the three of us. You know, we, we come to this every week with, with you know, we've got all sorts of different things to, 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 to say about this and all different kinds of angles at it, you know, and, and that's what makes it alive. That's the, the it, it because it's not only our conversation. This goes back to, to you know, the, the presentation of information. This is our story. This is our narrative. This is our life. And, and, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it great? Isn't it rich? Isn't it, isn't it wonderful? You know, and, and look how much we get out of it. Look how much joy we get out of it. Look how much meaning we get out of it. Yeah. Amen. This is it. You know, I, I, I um, that's just totally, totally excellent and beautiful. Um, you reminded me of two things. One, one is, there was a statement associated with the Kutzka Rebbe who said, why do we call it Matan Torah and not Kabbalah HaTorah? Why do we call it the day of the giving of the Torah, Zman Matan Torah Tenu, instead of Zman Kabbalat Torah Tenu, the day of the, the season of our accepting the Torah? He says, uh, the Torah was given once, but must be accepted every day. All the time. And, and it's kind of like you need to, you always need to be new. You need to always be, need to be new. Fresh. The, the, other, the other thing you reminded me of is that that I've, I've never done this because usually, frankly, I'm kind of limping into Shavuot. Um, but what I really want to do, you know, it's always a bit of a, for those of us who, you know, are traditional enough to observe two days of Yom Tov, like the second day of Shavuot is a little hard, okay? Because because the big day is about the gift of Torah at Mount Sinai, and that's the first day. And so, like, what's the point of the second day? of I, The second day of, of, of Shavuot seemed, for me, is sort of naturally less powerful than the second day of So we, we, we've been holidays. in Book of Ruth on second day, yeah? So my, my theory... What I would really love to do, which I have not ever got myself organized enough to do, is to devote um, 
Torah Shabbat on the first day and Torah Shabbat on the second day. Like the first day is the first. We have two Torahs in this religion: the written Torah and the written Torah and the oral Torah. And I, I like to say, you know, one God gave us and one we give God. And that the first the first day of Shavuot should be for the things that we've received, and the second day should be about the human creativity of rabbinic literature. Well, you have to let us know how it goes. Sounds good. <laughs> cool. it, it, it won't be this year either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're gonna we're gonna bring this to a conclusion. We just want to again sending chizuk, sending chizuk to to Klal Yisrael, to Am Yisrael, to Israel, all our friends, family, everybody being there. We want to send everyone who's watching and, and just thank you so much for being with us. We, we enjoy having you share our conversation. Send us your comments, reflections in the comments section and Facebook where Barry posts it. I post it on YouTube and Jeremy, you post it also on your show website. It's all great. We wish you all a good Shabbos. And a, and a wonderful, meaningful, quiet, hopefully, shall we watch? And may we all have simple joy in the study of Torah and Torah in our lives. Shabbat shalom,